Welcome to the Conversation of Money podcast. I am your host, Peter Komalafe. This is where we talk about money and all things personal finance, where we help you make the best financial decisions possible because money is a tool and life is for living. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast and in true fashion of trying to broaden out the topics that we're talking about here around other things that intersect with money and our decision-making process when it comes to money. Uh, We're going to continue down the line of money and psychology specifically. And um, for this, I actually um, ordered a book. Now, if you guys follow me on uh, YouTube, you will know that I actually picked this up in my video that I shot that went live on Tuesday last week. Really, really good book. And I'm so, so happy to actually have the author, Dr. Meg Arrell, on the line. She's a psychologist. She's going to be joining me for this episode. And uh, we're going to be talking about money, psychology, and something she calls the uh, tiny T's. Very, very interesting. So believe me, you want to pay attention to this because I'm sure it's going to be extremely eye-opening. Thank you so much for joining me, Meg. Pete, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for um, purchasing the book and, and, and reading it and engaging with it. I really do appreciate that. And I hope that um, your your audience has you know can can get some real help from this because financial education and the psychology of money is so very important. So everything you do is just awesome. Thank you, thank you. So just for the benefit of the listeners, can you mm-hmm. give them kind of like an overview to you what you do and your kind mm-hmm. of your background? So I'm a chartered psychologist, but also a chartered scientist. So I've done quite a lot of research as well. Um, I run a clinic and I work with people that generally are feeling just just not okay, but they're not really sure what the issue is. So they may have high function anxiety or low grade depression. And if you go to the GP, you may not be diagnosed with something and perhaps a little bit fobbed off sometimes and just kind of lost and not knowing exactly where to go for the answers. So that was one of the reasons why I decided to write the book, because I saw this real gap between mental health conditions that could be diagnosed and mental wellness, which we call flourishing. But there's this massive gray area in the middle and we don't really serve it properly at all. And that's what really, um, really piqued my interest in the smaller traumas, tiny T traumas. And so, yes, as well as some personal experience. Hmm. That's a really good introduction. You, you you actually opened the book with a section of that talking about mm-hmm. there are clearly diagnosable mental health issues, which mm-hmm. those are easily, well, you have treatments for them specifically. But the smaller things, like you're mm-hmm. saying, like you wake up one morning and you kind of like, you, you just don't feel yourself. You're not 100% there. Mm-hmm. And historically, that's been really, really difficult to pinpoint why that is. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, right now, over the past three, four days, I've just been feeling a little meh. And it's mm-hmm. probably because I haven't had a lot of time off. But mm-hmm. there may be something that might be a little bit more um, in depth around that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's something I should explore. But we all have those moments where we just don't feel ourselves. And the tiny T's in, in the book that you do explain can have a lot to do with... To, lot to do with that. Yeah, definitely. So as you say, we're actually quite good now at pinpointing the big T. So the big T is capital T for trauma. So those major things that happens in people's lives. So the very big T would be 
sort of experiencing a national disaster, which unfortunately quite a few people are, are, are having to experience at the time, or the, the death of a caregiver when you're very, very young, a violent attack, these things that actually really sort of completely disrupt and dysregulate our stress response. That's major big T trauma. But then there are life events that we go through. So some of these can be financial events. So perhaps getting into debt, losing a property or getting a divorce. And these are sort of, you know, really still significant. But there's also everyday things like microaggressions, like stigma around money. And they are smaller, but they build up over time. But we have, do not now yet have the discourse to talk about them. And that's, again, why I wanted to write the book, because these are cumulative. And that's the point. So one, one event is small, is tiny, lower case trauma. But it really is about the buildup of all these events over a lifetime. And the difficulty is, yes, you can wake up in the morning. And because it's not a big T, it's like, well, you know, nothing that bad really happened to me. So I don't really know what's wrong. And that's what I saw day after day in my clinic. People saying, well, I'm not even sure why I'm here. And they almost are kind of like backing out the door as well, because there's almost that self stigma around, well, other people have it worse off. So I, I should really just be kind of getting on with it. But, but no, if we recognize these tiny T's, recognize our own unique constellation, and that's a really important point too, that it's about the impact on us as an individual and the event could not have that impact on someone else, but that is how trauma works. It's about the impact, not the actual event. So understanding our own life course, understanding this unique sort of map for ourselves can really help to tweak these things out, these tiny T's out, but also give us tailored solutions about how to really make the most out of our lives because that's that's kind of what we want isn't it 100 percent. okay so this is where and the risk of this being like a, a, a therapy session <laughs> for me i would love to share with you just a couple of things so hey. i i I have through the years been very, very curious about why um, I struggled with money and how I got into debt. Well, mm. not necessarily into debt because I know how I got into debt. But when I got to the point where I was working in Canary Wharf and doing really, really well, I've been trying to make sense of why um, I made the financial decisions that I did back then mm. in terms of my spending habits, mm. being at the point where my pam my family were poor, I've been homeless, Canary Wharf was a dream. Mm. I get to Canary Wharf. I start earning really good money. Then I spend money on things that are just ridiculous, just crazy, crazy, crazy. Mm. And I started to question and start to think about what my early, my earliest memories of money were. And there are two instances, and I share this actually in my book, where I kind of remember an impact of, okay, we're poor. The first mm -hmm. was when I was like, five or six years old, I was being fostered. And the family next to me, their son, Glenn, was my best mate. And at dinner times, their kitchen sound, it was amazing. The smells, the aromas coming out of the kitchen were amazing. And when I looked at our kitchen, we were eating baked beans on toes, fist fingers, and all that kind of stuff for dinner. So right there, it was like, okay, we can't afford the food that's in that household right there. Mm -hmm. The second time was when I was in Nigeria um, in school 
and just noticing other kids not really you know, kids were wearing better trainers and had nicer things than me even though I was quite an anomaly because I was I, I spoke like this in, in an African country and people thought oh you know you're you're rich you're wealthy mm. I remember going back home mm. to my parents asking whether we we're rich or not and whether we were poor and they just laughed at me so those two things were the two instances that I remember where okay I had a realization we don't have any money we don't have any money and I think what it did for me is it embedded um, a scarcity mindset Mm-hmm. And I think personally that that really impacted me when I got to Canary Wharf, where I started making a, a ton of money to kind of just splash out because there were all these things that I wanted to buy and things that I wished that I had that I couldn't afford up until then. And I think that that massively impacted my decision-making process when it came to money and how I interface and thought about money as mm-hmm. more of a commodity than than a tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pete, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that's so useful to really understand how money and the view of the self link, but also how it links to our behavior. Can I just ask you a question, though? When you mm-hmm. asked your parents, are, are we poor? And they laughed. How did that make you feel? Um, well, I was about nine at that point. Mm. I was kind of like, I was a little shocked, but I was almost a little ashamed that I'd asked the stupid question, almost. That's mm-hmm. what it felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember them, there was a passing off comment that they said it was like, oh, he has no idea. Like in a, in a jesting way, that this guy is living on a different planet altogether, that, you know, he must think that we're something that we're not. That's what I got from it, mm-hmm. essentially. And I mm-hmm. think, I've thought about that moment a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been, it would have been a lot more productive to have a conversation to say, look, you know, this is the reality of where we are mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you, you may not have the nice things um, that other kids have and the kids may think that you're the opposite. It would have nice to have had a conversation, but I don't think that my parents were really that equipped to be able to have those mm-hmm. com- conversations. It was mm-hmm. an African household. So mm-hmm. like talking about those kind of things was never, ever going to be an option. Mm-hmm. That is such a classic example of tiny tea and you holding that memory of that event all this time through your life and linking it now to some behaviors that didn't really serve you very well in in terms of your spending that is exactly a tiny tea trauma and how that has mixed with a more macro level of trauma in terms of the way society really views money, really views people particularly that don't have very much money, how these things interact to set up our own internal schema and view about both ourselves and about money. But see, this is exactly what I'm, I'm trying to get out of my book. That story that triggered a sense of shame and sometimes a sense of guilt, those are what the tiny T's are. And what they do is they close us down so we don't communicate this. And when we're not communicating our feelings and our experience, what happens, it results in what we call maladaptive behavioral patterns. So Pete, for you, that spending pattern was maladaptive. It really didn't sort of bring any sort of um, benefit to your life in the sense of what you were doing at the time. And in fact, it really drained you, it sounds like. 
it's exactly what tiny t is and sometimes it's easier to start with the behavior and work back like you have just naturally so again thank you so much for sharing that because that is exactly tiny t mm. and, and this is one of the things that i'm passionate about for the podcast and the things that i do now is that you know, try to challenge people to think about these things because mm. I, I don't know. I, I'm just, I, I believe that everything we do comes from something, right? Mm. You know, and you say this oh, in yeah. the book, when you're a baby, you're a clean slate. So it's the little things that happen to us or the big things that happen to us that basically get us to a point where we make certain choices or we behave in certain ways. Those are almost like learned behaviors to a certain extent. And it becomes very, very interesting when you talk about money specifically. And I'd love to touch on your thoughts around what you feel are the um, psychological impacts of things like debt, because I, I I struggled with debt for 15 years. Part of it was because I was homeless at the time. And I realized that actually I didn't have any food to eat, but I did have a checkbook. And back then I could walk into Tesco's, I could write a check, they'll give me the food and then well, the check would bounce and I'd have to deal with it later on. But the the sense of, and I didn't, I didn't know this at the time, but the anxiety, the depression that I felt, which at the time I was like, eh, you know, maybe I'm just being paranoid. But actually now that we speak about mental health a lot, of, a lot more, I realize that had a profound impact on my mental health because the anxiety that I felt was through the roof, mm -hmm. sleepless nights. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until writing my book that I was like, that wasn't normal. It really, really mm. wasn't normal. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that trauma and that psychological part around um, debt, because there'll be a lot of people dealing with debt now with, with cost of living crisis. Absolutely. So um, mental health and money have a very intricate, intricate relationship. And of course, because money pays for the roof of our heads, it pays for the food in our belly or, or not in some cases. So we need those physiological needs to be met to feel secure. If we don't feel secure, then it produces a stress response and that then produces anxiety. And what you were suffering from, it sounds like, was quite severe anxiety. What we know from the research is that people who um, are diagnosed with mental health conditions, they do struggle to manage money. But also we know that people who get into debt, who start to have problems, with money management, then develop things like anxiety and depression. So, and it can happen to anyone is what I wanna say. Um, people, we sometimes think, and this is where the stigma comes in, and stigma very much is in the tiny trauma, the lowercase trauma, because we tend to push it under the table, we tend to ignore it. So stigma is a very important thing to be aware of. So say we get into a little bit of that, then we just, we get into a little bit of an avoidance cycle in terms of how we deal with it because it's so stigmatized. So say bills coming through the post and just putting them in a drawer and not really wanting to deal with them, that then creates a bigger debt problem, which then creates more stress and anxiety. And there's this vicious, vicious, vicious cycle until one day we wake up and actually the bailiffs are at the door. Um, and I talk about this from personal experience as well, because my dad, who sadly passed away during COVID, he um, he was diagnosed with, <clears throat> excuse me, bipolar disorder. So he had quite a serious mental health condition and um, he got into a lot of debt. 
so much so that my parents lost their house when I was a teenager. It was very, very difficult for everyone. And although my mom didn't have a predisposed mental health condition, it actually leaded to quite a lot of anxiety and depression for her and huge difficulties with the family. But I vividly remember my parents receiving bills and then just shoving them in the bin, not even opening them because of that avoidance pattern. Because, you know, if it was kind of out of sight, out of mind and not tackling that. So mental health and money are so closely linked and so I think, which I'm sure you do as well, Pete, that we should talk about financial education young at school. We should be educating the next generation about managing emotions, about how to increase your financial um, literacy, all of these things, because they all impact one another. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I mean, your studies have shown that financial habits are baked in at age seven and you think about that it's really scary like seven is really really young but kids taking things so they take in so much like sponges right and you know I go back to my those first lessons you know I was what six years old at that point and then to have okay scarcity you don't have a lot of money scarcity that's a really really big telling point and you know on debt I I there was um, a piece of data that came out uh, about three weeks ago, and I covered this on on Pack Lunch. Consumer debt in the run up to Christmas and New Year's 2022 increased by 1.5 billion pounds. 1.2 of that, so 80% of that, was on credit cards. And as a consequence of of that massive increase in consumer debt, what the uh, charity Step Changes found is that they've seen a 21% increase in people going to them for help because now they're struggling with how they're going to repay what they've borrowed during that period of time. And the whole anxiety, depression, that you bury your head in the sand because mm, you don't want to look at this. I mean, I definitely did that for sure. It's like, let's not think about it now. You procrastinate, you push it, push it aside. You'll deal with it later on. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And it takes a lot of courage to kind of be like, okay, look, I need to face this head on. And I don't think a lot of people naturally get to that position until they have no choice but to Mm -hmm. face up to it. Mm -hmm. And it takes that level of courage because it is still so stigmatized. It really is. And there are there are there's so many messages we have within our society about money. And if we really do struggle to manage money. It's kind of a reflection on us as a person, and it needn't be at all. This is something that has been constructed within our societies, and we can change that, though. So the really hopeful message is that we can change that, and people do talk about mental health more so, but I still think in terms of of money and finances, it really is still seen to be something that is quite shameful. So we need to work on that to really change that, because as with your, your narrative of when you were a young boy and having that conversation with your parents, as you said, actually, it didn't have to be that way. And this is another thing about the tiny T traumas. We can change them. We can change them for our loved ones, for our friends and our family. So if that conversation had been a bit more, okay, this is where we are. This is what money is. This is what it's about. The outcome would have been so, so different. We can take that knowledge and bring it forward with us, but we can educate other people. Other people can give us their experiences too. 
So unlike some of the big T trauma that we can't control, we do have some influence on this lower level trauma that can change the outcome completely. Yeah. I know through the book, you mentioned um, in some sections, you've referenced social media quite a bit. And um, social media for me, is just one of those things where I'm on social media, my business is social media based, but I hate it. I think it paints this unrealistic expectation of what life should be in it. I think it really does. And I, it, I know you mentioned this, but it's something that I say a lot. I wouldn't want to be 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 year, years old in a social media age. It feels like reality is so skewed. How do you, what impact do you think social media has when it comes to those tiny T's these days? Huge. It's a, it's a whole new breed of tiny T trauma. It's huge. And because it's still quite new, um, not for young people because they grew up with it, but you and I, we are, you know, uh, digital immigrants so we are trying mm -hmm. to figure stuff out even if we use it we're trying to figure out how we can protect our younger people around it but it is the wild wild west out there and it's just mm -hmm. the sheer volume of it as well so young people would go to school you might have 20 30 kids in your class that you could compare your trainers to but now it's billions of people billions mm -hmm. of people online and we always tend to compare up so there's some almost unfortunate sort of cognitive heuristics that we have. They've served us well in terms of our evolution because we needed them to survive when we were early humans. But we still have the same physiology and we still have the same sort of cognitive shortcuts. So we will compare up because at one point in, in our history, we needed to do that to sort of judge our opponent to be able to survive, to be able to either fight mm -hmm. or flee or freeze. So it was an adaptive, adaptive mechanism. Now we still do the compare up, but now we do it about stuff, you know, and that mm -hmm. stuff online is constant. It is this constant stream in terms of the availability of the information. It's in our hands all mm -hmm. the time. And information consumption is as important as if you're consuming a lot of junk food. It has a very negative impact. But it is a tool and we can choose how we use it, but it is hard and it takes a huge amount of discipline to be able to do that. And in terms, again, of educating young people to be able to do that, we are only just now touching the surface. So I, like you, you know, I have a, a like-hate relationship with social media. <laughs> I'd say it's definitely not my favorite thing to spend my time doing, but I even feel myself getting drawn in hugely hugely because it's very much engineered to do that there are some very clever yeah. people in the world that are doing this specifically to trigger mm -hmm. these cognitive heuristics to trigger these stress responses and fear responses to develop what is an addictive like pattern of social media and phone use so yes that's a that's a big old mountain to climb i would say yeah it's it's interesting when you put it that way because it is about it is the addictiveness it is keeping you on screen all the time and then obviously the algorithms feed you more of what you've already seen and if you're not seeking the right kind of thing so you you're willingly or unknowingly exposing yourself to things that you might not know will be harmful for you 
you're likely going to come across something that is going to negatively harm you. And so for me, I'm always kind of very cognizant of what I consume online. There's a there, One of the things that drives me nuts, certainly for my space and what I do talking about money and, and, and this kind of stuff online, is this unrealistic um, visualization of what the perfect life is or what success is. It's all about the Rolex, the Lamborghinis, the Ferraris. And I'm like, if you're 20, 22, 23-year-olds and that's what you expect success to be, it puts on a different slant to to what it actually means and the things that are important in life because it it's not all about success. You can be successful in different ways. It's just it's very, very difficult to navigate. It is because we absolutely can be successful in so many different ways. We can be successful in terms of our health. We can be successful in terms of a relationship. But really, even the word success, we can. I would say we can be healthy in those ways. The thing with social media, it is visual. So it lends itself to Lamborghinis. It lends itself to those very expensive watches in that way. But also there are people making a lot of money from this too. So in, in terms of that, there will always be the drive to do that, the drive to do that. But what you're saying is we do have to be so intentional around it. But even if we are, we can still get pulled in. We can still get pulled in because research does show even if we know those pictures are a bit contrived or they're filtered or tweaked in any way, even if they know that, they still trigger those negative emotions in us that tell us yeah. we aren't good enough. And when we don't feel good yeah. enough, what we tend to do is buy something to make us feel a bit better. So it it is so hard to resist. Um, having that awareness is key, but awareness, um, as I cover in my book, is not it's not quite enough. There's some other stages we do need to tackle to be able to have a healthier relationship with social media. Absolutely. So in your book, you you have the AAA approach. Yes. I was wondering, can you just walk us through mm -hmm. the AAA approach? Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's really, really interesting the way you kind of position it through the book. Mm -hmm. And you actually show how it can be used across the different various kinds of tiny teas. Yeah. So in, in the book, most of the chapters are on a different presentation that I see in, in my clinic. So as I say, that high function anxiety, imposter syndrome, emotional eating. But what I wanted to do and what I do in practice is to develop an approach for whatever somebody is experiencing. So it's called the AAA approach. And the first A is that awareness. So being aware, not only that tiny T trauma exists, because that's so important, but having doing a little bit of work around your own tiny T's and tweaking them out. Because when we do that work, we can pick up on those smaller things that have deeply, deeply impacted us. And it all starts to make sense. Like you, I do believe there's always a reason for, for everything I do. But awareness is, is not enough. It's a good start. And we actually have done quite a lot on awareness with, you know, as I say, those big T, the life events, but not so much on the tiny T's then we need to accept that some things have affected us. Um, and often when we don't reach a place of acceptance, we battle internally with ourselves. So acceptance, I would say, often is the hardest part and people tend to skip over the acceptance part. So I see so many clients that come to me and they do have a good awareness. We do more awareness around the tiny T's actually, but they go straight into action. 
So the last stage is action. And it's often those things that you see in the media. And I'm always asked for those, you know, Meg, give me a five minute tip or hint to be able to reduce anxiety, (laughs) all the rest of it. And they are great and they are evidence based and they work. But actually just going from awareness to action without acceptance in the middle means that what happens is that action will work for a little while, but we'll tend to be drawn back and have those mornings we wake up again and we just don't feel particularly good. Mm. Why do you think it's common for people to try and jump over the acceptance piece? Because it's hard. Because it's it brings up emotions that we have demonized. So, you know, negative feeling emotions like sadness, like guilt, like shame, like even like melancholy in our society, we've said they're bad. They feel unpleasant. Of course they do, but they're a normal part of human experience. So in the book, I talk about the emotobiome. So we've talked a lot about, you know, our, our, the flora and fauna and microbes that live in our gut so much recently. And we do know that we need to have a diversity of gut bacteria to give us that really strong immune system. It's the same with our psychological and emotional inner world. We need to experience the full range of human emotion to develop those coping skills, to develop resilience, to be robust in terms of coping with the things in life that will always come up. Waiting for life to be perfect, waiting for life to be happy, is actually not a really you know healthy way to approach life in that sense we need to tool ourselves up like we would with other skills but we tend to think that emotions you know oh we just want to feel the good ones we just want to feel joy we just want to feel pleasure no 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 no. it is perfectly okay but more than okay it's absolutely necessary to experience all emotions and be able to regulate them Emotional regulation is a key, is absolutely key to good, both physical and mental health outcomes in our lives. You also mentioned in the book, um, what was it, positive toxicity um, as as (laughs) something that people often do. Can you please talk through that? Because I found it quite fascinating. And it's very, very easy just kind of like you you drop into it because you think you're being positive, but actually it's it's quite toxic in the way that you explained it. So again, it's a societal type of, of tiny tea. Um, so I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So there was a woman, she was in her late thirties. She had some uh, struggles with, with conceiving. And so she went and did some IVF and that was very, very challenging itself. And that's what we would know would be that experience is actually quite traumatic. Um, and she did fall pregnant and, but sadly, um, she, she had a miscarriage and, and, and she lost the baby. And we know, we know that that's traumatic. We can put our finger on it. She then was with a friend that she hadn't seen in a while. And, um, this friend sort of said to her, because actually this woman sadly broke up with her partner because it was such a difficult situation amongst other things. And this friend said to her, Oh well, you you know what? It's probably it's probably a good thing that that you didn't have that baby because then you'd be stuck with your ex. And the friend thought she was being helpful, but it really, really wasn't helpful at all. And we say things like that 
We are, the intention is actually to try and help, but we're not thinking. And what we're thinking about is that we are finding that a difficult conversation. So we want to move on from it. We don't want to sit with someone and hold the space with them and allow them to feel the range of feelings that you'd be feeling in that situation. And so it is not really being particularly supportive. And we do it so commonly in life. We really, really do. You know, when we say things like, oh, tomorrow's another day, if somebody's telling us that they're having a bad day, what we can do to support people, as I say, is to listen. And we have almost sort of got out of practice of listening. We're often thinking about what we're going to say next. And it generally is in those uncomfortable moments because, again, we're not practiced at sitting with things that feel unpleasant. But we need to. We need to give things, these things space because otherwise when we push them down, what happens is we have the presentations of themes that I do share in my book that people come to see me with. And that's turned into some difficult behaviors that then impact our lives even more so in the future. How important do you think it is to have, um, I don't think not the same kind of people around you, but people around you who you can have those moments where mm -hmm. they're comfortable with allowing you to sit in a space and encourage that kind of introspection and that that processing i mean it's obviously in, a, in an ideal world we're never going to have that 100 percent of the time but how how important do you think it is to maybe have one person in your circle where that is a possibility that you can build and nurture mm. So, Pete, I think the difficulty there is that we expect that from one person. So what can be more useful is I say, OK, on, on your hands, choose five different people. And if you don't have five, that's fine. But more than one person in different areas of your life that can hold some space for you. But don't rely on the one person. Again, this is more of a societal tiny t that's built on unrealistic expectations that there will be that one person that can do that for us no 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 we need to have many people in our lives that can support us in different ways but also we need to communicate with them because as i say the intention generally isn't negative they just don't know how we need to say to them you know when i talk to you i i just want to talk i just want you to be with me i just want to hold space with you but actually, if you start to think of bits of advice you want to give me, can you just hold back? Because we're just talking. And if you think of something you want to say to try and actually make me feel better, actually, j j just listen, just, just, just wait, just wait, just hold with me. And to be able to do that with various people, because in that sense, we do have that network. And what we need is a support network, not just the one person. So I would say, and you know what, with clients, we draw out our hands and we write down and pinpoint different people. So there may be someone in our family. There may be someone that we, we work with that we're close to. There may be someone that we do a hobby with. Pinpoint those different people and communicate with them what we need. Because you know what, that's going to help that person to be a better listener. It's going to trigger in them. Well, perhaps I need that too. I need somebody to just sit with me too. And that will have this positive ripple effect because you know what, as I say, we're doing really well with talking about mental health, but we need to go further. 
this will help us to go further. I think that's really, really important. And so for people who are listening to this and watching this on YouTube, how do they contact you? How do they order order the book? So um, my book, Tiny Traumas, um, and I, I do really like the, um, the sort of subheading because it's when you don't know what's wrong, but just nothing feels quite right. You can find it on Amazon, but also other online retailers. It is in the shops too. And my website is drmegarrell.com. And um, Pete, honestly, thank you so much for today. No, no worries. No, no worries at all. Like I said, guys, really, really good book. Um, I'm about a quarter of the way through it at the moment. And there's already things that have kind of jumped out to me. And um, I can't wait to finish it and just kind of use it to kind of reflect on a few things. And because we talk about money here, I'm very, very interested in the link to money specifically. And there's some bits in here that already that I found that are actually very, very useful that are quite thought provoking. So I'll leave links to the book down in the show notes and in the uh, description section on YouTube if you're watching this. Um, but look, guys, I have said that I do want to branch out and these are very, 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 very important topics. Yes, invested is important. Yes, doing the right thing with your money is important. But if your mind isn't right, if your head isn't right, then you're not going to be able to make the best decisions possible. And I'm actually quite passionate about this kind of stuff, which is why we're having more of these conversations on the pod and certainly on, on the YouTube channel. So please do share this with someone that you, you know may need it or may not actually need it, who may be interested in it. Um, but this is something that we definitely need to speak more about. And thank you again, Meg, for, for joining me for this, this episode of the pod.